In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Grace and peace to you from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. How is it that we are to be one? How are we supposed to be unified? Jesus prays here that you and I, indeed all his disciples, be unified. He prays that they be one even as we are one. What does he mean? A few have concluded that such unity is established by Christians doing good works together, by living out acts of love in some common fashion. Such an idea takes passages about how our good works shine Christ's light and make them a principle for establishing unity. Some have concluded that to be one means that everyone needs to be unified in one church body under a single authority, and thereby show our unity in Christ in this way. This has been the direction and the model exhibited most clearly by the Roman Catholic Church, but there are others. Unity is found in the organization and structure, the authority who defines what it means. In the case of the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope and, to some extent, the Church Council bishops are that authority. Others have essentially concluded that this means that everyone who claims to be a Christian should be unified into one church body. This has been the prevailing direction of many, but not all, of the ecumenical talks over the past 100 years. It's similar to the outward unity seen in the Roman Catholic Church, but without the establishment of a common authority. Unity is sought or maintained in an outward way, being expressed by the visible ties of one name. This often includes principles such as agreeing to disagree, the unity is found in the claim to be one and the willingness to honor our respect differences because such differences do not matter. Now, to be clear, there are some differences that do not matter. There's a realm of adiaphora or differing things into which topics and matters on which God has not spoken are open and such need not be divisive. In this case, we are talking about church bodies saying different things about what God has spoken, but saying such even contradictory positions do not matter. For example, we say that the Lord's Supper is Christ's body and blood that is truly present, and you say it's just bread and wine, and that's okay, even though the reason behind such a different teaching about how either Christ Jesus' human nature binds him and prevents him from doing what is humanly impossible, or how, since he is God, he's able to do what is otherwise impossible with human flesh, how such teachings contradict. This, of course, moves us to one other idea that is essentially the same thing. It is that everyone who claims to be Christian or bears the name Christian is unified. The name is a mark of unity, and anyone's unity is determined by his or her, her own affiliation with the name. Each one is to be accepted by his or her own willingness to be associated or claim that name. Such goes for things like 
born-again Christian or Christ follower or charismatic or any other name or title under which unity is achieved by self-determination. And that's the key point here. For a name may involve a statement of beliefs or other assumptions, but it's up to the individual to decide if it applies to him or not. Finally, this brings us to one other model of unity, a hybrid of sorts. It was first used in the early church and simply referred to as the rule of faith. Unity was found and expressed in the common confession of Christ Jesus and all that he said and taught. This unity was expressed in creeds or statements of faith to which Christians attached themselves of their own accord, but over which pastors provided oversight and sought to be in agreement in these confessions and creeds with other pastors and their individual churches. This model is used by any church that first calls for its members to agree on what God's Word says and seeks then to be unified with other churches based on that common confession. This is reflected in confessional Lutheran churches and confessional Reformed churches, although these confessions do disagree. Now, to be clear, almost all churches have statements of faith and belief, and these statements play a role in that church. The point here is what is the primary means by which unity is established are reflected. Because you will find elements of these in all churches. And the bigger question then is, what is Jesus saying here? He clearly wants us to be unified. Are any and all paths of unity valid? What has Christ intended? Jesus says the unity of his disciples is to reflect the unity of him and the Father. Now as we understand the teaching of the Trinity, we know we cannot accomplish such unity ourselves, and that such unity can only be reflected and is a reflection of the unity of the Father and the Son. For the unity of the Father and the Son is more than an agreement of purpose or action, or more than a unity of some loving ethic. This is a profound unity that God's people reflect but do not establish or create. Instead, this unity is one that Christ creates. This is the unity that Christ creates in and with each one of us in baptism. This is unity that our Lord establishes. We cannot establish this or create it. This is a unity received. You see, Jesus is not praying in verse 11 for this unity to come to pass, as if it were up to us to establish. Jesus has already indicated in his prayer that the disciples belong to him and to the Father, and that he has given them the word that the Father gave him, and that they have received, kept, guarded that word. His prayer is that they would be kept in the Father's name so that they would be one. In other words, Jesus is praying that the unity that he has given them would be maintained and kept. This is the same thought Paul expresses in Ephesians 4.3, where he writes, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And Paul goes on from there to speak about the unity of God, faith, baptism, and the church, which is to grow up into Christ. Notice how Paul says, maintain. It has been gifted to you, 
and you and I are called to keep it. We're called to establish it or make it. This means unity is and can only be had in Christ's teaching and word. The sayings he delivered to us from the Father. To start somewhere else would be folly. It's here we must go because we are under the reign, rule, and authority of Jesus. Such means we cannot establish a human structure and count on it to remain true. Any church body, not just the Roman Catholic Church, that finds its unity in its structure is opening itself to the future corruption because men run such institutions. To be under Jesus' reign and rule, then, is to have His word as preeminent and as the authority. Let the King, to whom we belong, speak and say who and what we are. His word needs to have the place of final authority and direction. This also means that individual Christians cannot decide individually for ourselves what Jesus is saying. Otherwise, every individual becomes the authority instead of Christ. No, what he says is final and with what we must live in and under. And where there is doubt about what he is saying, we let Scripture interpret Scripture. And we even refer to the church fathers before us to look at what was and has been faithfully handed down to us, that we might receive it rather than coming up with it on our own. And this is ultimately the problem we and those around us face today. We all want to determine our life. We all want to determine ourselves in the way we want to live and how we want to live. We don't want others to tell us how to live our belief. We want to have it our own way. Just like the commercials and the songs tell us, have it your way. Our desires and wants become the determining factor rather than reality. After all, given all our technology and so forth, we think we can shape reality. But there's only one who has the power and authority, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. This is the glory Jesus prays would once again shine forth in Him and be recognized. The glory He has before creation. The glory He hid and did not make use of in order to humble Himself as a servant and die for us. That God our Creator did this should call all people to repent. To see how the Almighty God, who controls everything, acted to serve and save us should cause all of us to rethink things. Otherwise, those who insist that they get to determine reality will be crushed by Jesus' reign and rule and glory because no one can stand in opposition to the Creator of all things and make God serve such an individual in the way He individually wants to be served. No creation can make a slave of God. Sadly, many in this world will learn this the hard way. God is not their slave. And yet God takes the role of a slave and servant in order to redeem and love us. He willingly puts on the slave and servant clothes. Jesus is sent from the Father. God coming from God to serve us. Not according to our desires, but according to His goodness. Jesus acts for you and me to die and rise. He acts to redeem us. He acts to forgive all our sins 
through his suffering and death. This is his glory. Look at how he prays for his disciples as he prepares to head for the cross to die for each of them. He prays for their protection and benefit. He prays for you and me that we would be maintained in his faith and in his word and name. He prays that we would remain in our baptisms for that is where we were put into his name. He prays that we would continue on with him walking in his word all our days as his baptized children. But not only that, we see here, as we hear this just before Pentecost, that Jesus prays for his glorification, that he may glorify the Father. Now the Father glorifies Jesus in his death, resurrection, and ascension. Here is our King acting for us by dying, rising, and reigning from on high. And now Jesus likewise glorifies the Father, submitting to death and love for the Father and us, and so glorifying Him by showing His great love for us. He also glorifies the Father by rising and ascending to proclaim the Father to the world, to creation. As He has authority over all, so He lifts up the Father before us all that we would praise and recognize the Father as we also recognize the Holy Spirit and the Son. And this is where the church is directed to go and proclaim God and His Word. We're not to be an institution of men or by men, but Christ's institution guarded and maintained in this world by men. Our unity is in Christ Jesus and is expressed in our confessing together what He taught us. We're not here to confess ourselves or our church, but Christ Jesus. Such a confession of His Word will confess His church, that is, His body, of which we are all by His grace. And as His body, so we confess together His teaching. We deny ourselves in repentance, confessing our sins, in our agreement with Him. For we've all sinned, we've all wronged our Lord, we've gone against Him, and haven't always spoken what He said, or acted as we should. And so we confess. We confess our sin. We confess our error. We confess who He is, as our Lord and Savior, and everything else He taught us. And we confess that here, as we agree with each other, of what He said. Such unity that has been given to us, we together affirm and acknowledge at His table today. Here we make that confession as He gives us His body and blood, as He forgives us and washes away our sins. Because He does forgive us our sins and everything that separates Him, us, from Him. Everything that separates us from one another, He forgives. And then He binds us together in His teaching, in His Word. Peace of God which passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen.